Inside the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen, and each episode I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of a top college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and be full of behind-the-scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips that will help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Steve Schwartz, CEO and founder of LSAT Unplugged, on recent changes to the LSAT and how students can achieve a T14 worthy score. Hi, Steve. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Ellen. Thanks so much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background? You know, how does someone become an LSAT coach and expert? Yeah, sure. Well, everyone's journey is different. But for me personally, it started back when I was studying for the LSAT myself. This was back in 2005 now. So it's been a while. And I was, I took it with the intention of going to law school myself. A lot of people don't typically get into this for fun. And I had a lot of struggles with this exam. I thought it would be like the SAT or the ACT, which I had done pretty well on. But the LSAT was just a totally different animal, much more difficult than I'd anticipated. And so I was in for a rude awakening when I got a perfectly average diagnostic score and the next one after that and the next one after that. And so through lots of ups and downs over the course of what ended up being an entire year, I ended up achieving my 175. And the funny thing is, once I got that score, other people started asking me how to conquer the exam themselves. And I got so wrapped up in just the exam that I never ended up going to law school myself. And so here I am, 2021, 16 years later, still doing this, but I'm loving it. And for the uninitiated, 175 is the top score. So 175 is the 99th percentile. The LSAT's out of 180. And anyone who gets 173 or above is in the top 1%. I do always remember how to tell what's a good score because L Woods gets a 174. So I, th- I think she gets a 179, actually. Yeah, but that's okay. the top. That's like one of the top scores. Yeah. In the musical, she gets a 174, and I think they it's it had it. a. I think it had a better rhyme in the musical. <laughs> I could go no back kidding. and look into that. Oh, but... I, I haven't seen. I haven't seen the musical. That's so funny, though. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, could you just talk to me about what services does LSAT Unplugged provide? Yeah, sure. So, really, the the flagship uh, offering is the online course. So, the LSAT Unplugged live online course. We have live Zoom sessions virtually every single day covering each section of the exam, logic games, logical reasoning, reading comprehension, study groups as well, weekly practice tests. And so we have different course options, but that's pretty much the, it's it's, it's an online test prep course, primarily via Zoom. That's awesome. I think after this year, I mean, I'm sure people are a little tired of Zoom. I know I am, but I also... I think we're all seeing the benefits of Zoom, you know, rather than driving somewhere and wasting an hour to and from to a test prep class, just being able to do it from the comfort of your own home, especially when you're super busy. I think let's go right into just the LSAT in general. Could you break down the LSAT for me? You know, how long is the test? How many sections? What does it cover? Yeah, sure. So the LSAT actually has gone through a lot of changes over the past few years. The most recent being during COVID, they moved it online. So now the LSAT is online at home, like my prep course. It's um, it's three sections now, currently, as we speak, the last LSAT flex is about to be administered soon, but then they're going to make, add on a fourth section. So I'll start over. Basically, it's online, at home, administered via ProctorU. You have three scored sections, logic games, logical reasoning, and reading comprehension. 
Each section is 35 minutes long. It's multiple choice. Logic games are short puzzles that seem a little bit mathematical in nature. You're basically symbolizing rules and manipulating variables. So you're choosing some variables, not others. You're selecting, or you might be putting variables into an order or a list or a ranking for, for logic games like that, for puzzles like that. You have logical reasoning, which is short bite-sized arguments where they're asking you to evaluate an argument's level of reasoning. So you're evaluating it. You're, you might strengthen it. You might weaken it. You might identify a flaw with the argument. Finally, you have reading comprehension, which is basically short passages of about 450 words. You're being asked to answer questions about those passages, which might seem on the surface similar to the SAT or the ACT. The difference is that here you're really focusing on evaluating the structure of the argument. Now, the LSAT was shortened from five sections to three due to COVID moving it online starting in March 2020. But starting this August 2021, I know we'll talk about this in a little bit, they're adding in the fourth unscored experimental section, which they use to evaluate future questions. So I'll stop there. Speaking of the online format, what are you hearing from students as far as pros and cons? I know personally, I feel like I would excel better if there's like sort of like a tactile relationship between me and a piece of paper versus a computer screen. So are students struggling or some students excelling more in this online format? Now I hear you on that. I kind of personally feel the same way. I'm a bit old fashioned. I prefer the paper and pencil, but a lot of people love the online. I mean, legit like the course, right? So logistical benefits to being via Zoom, same with the online LSAT, being at home or a hotel, wherever you are in the world, you can access it. So people like not having to go somewhere and deal with the stress of the test center situation, the other test takers, the proctors walking around. So people generally prefer the at home, assuming you have a good internet connection. Now, downsides are you can have tech issues, right? So you could have tech issues even with an in-person LSAT administered via tablet, which it was briefly. But as long as, as, long as you have a, a smooth text taking experience without any tech issues or glitches, which there have been a few, but they're getting better about that people generally like it better. Plus it's still shorter, even with the recent, the upcoming change it, it's still shorter than it was pre-COVID when it was five sections. So everyone loves a shorter exam. And how long in terms of hours was it before and how long of it in terms of hours is it during COVID? Sure. So it used to be five sections, 35 minutes each, plus a break. And so that was going to run typically at least three hours. Plus you have the stress of going there and back and maybe running late and such test taking time to like filling in your name and address with, with bubbling for like an hour for some reason, right? So reading the instructions. So all of that went away with the LSAT flex being only three sections, 35 minutes each. It was about two hours total. Now, when we're adding in a fourth unscored experimental section, that's also 35 minutes. Plus you're adding in a break between sections two and three now of about 10 minutes we're now looking at roughly two and a half hours or two hours and 45 minutes. Have we seen any changes in the test scores because of online um, administration? Are they trending upwards? Are they basically stable? Yeah. So this is actually kind of funny. Um, scores have been higher with the LSAT flex. And I don't think LSAC intended that. They wanted everything to be the same for the validity of the exam. But I think they underestimated that due to COVID people being stuck at home, they had more time to prep than they otherwise would have. Plus a shorter exam has some benefits. You're not dealing with the same level of, of endurance and fatigue you might get with a longer exam, as well as you're no longer having the stress of having to go somewhere, 
deal with other test takers making noise or distracting you or dealing with the proctors as well. So people performed better with the flex. Now, of course, I don't expect that to continue long-term. LSAC is going to adjust their raw score conversions, aka the curve, to account for that. So anyone listening, taking this in the future, don't expect it's going to be suddenly much easier. They've, they've adjusted that. But for a brief period during COVID, scores were higher. And I'm sure you've seen on the admissions side as well, people are, have been getting some boosts in their admissions chances, and we can expect that to reduce over time. Makes a lot of sense. I know I'm not the only person during COVID who like briefly considered taking a practice LSAT or like a practice GRE and just seeing what happens. All that extra time, I think everyone's, hmm, maybe I should go to law school. Maybe yeah, plus with the economy as well. That. You know, yeah. With the economy as well, again, the opportunity cost is lower. We have seen a surge in applications across the board, all graduate schools, right? People looking to wait out the pandemic, looking to wait out the, the employment situation. And so if you have some more time to study, you could put it there and reap the results long-term. And unfortunately, I've seen as well that a lot of colleges underestimated their yield. And so they just absolutely can't let the number of students they've admitted in because they don't have the professors, they don't have the classroom space. And then the number of jobs as lawyers is inelastic. So it's quite a conundrum for current yeah. students. <laughs> yeah, lots of, lots of tricky things for them to figure out there. So if I'm a student and I have an above average LSAT score, can that balance out a low GPA? Can that balance out other application flaws? Absolutely. I mean, the LSAT score, my understanding is it's the biggest factor in admissions. The other elements are extremely important as well, of course. And so if you can't crack the LSAT, you should definitely spend your time on the application side of things. But if you have a low GPA and doesn't reflect your true potential, then the way to balance it is get a high LSAT score. That's one of the easiest quote unquote, easiest things you can do. That's one particular thing you can focus on. And your GPA is largely probably fixed by the point you're looking to encounter the LSAT and deal with it. But you spend, if you take the time you spend just for one class in college and you look at that compared to the LSAT, that time invested on the LSAT is going to have a much bigger impact on your admissions chances than any individual class. And so I would treat the LSAT at least like a six credit class and don't just spend two to three months on it. In my view, it typically, in my experience, it typically takes at least five to six months to reach your fullest potential. And on the other hand, if someone sits and they take the LSAT and as they're taking it, you know, maybe they're sick, maybe they're, it just goes really badly. They're distracted. Let's discuss when and why a student might cancel their LSAT score. First of all, if it's, if it's a bad day, it happens to so many people. I think more people than not look to retake these days. And there's good reason for that because law schools don't average multiple LSAT scores. They only take the highest. So there's every reason in the world to retake. So if, if it doesn't go well the first time, look at why. Was it that you didn't have enough time to study the first time around? Was it that there was a, a tech issue with a proctor or something? Was it that you bombed one of the logic games and then it kind of stayed with you for the remainder of the exam? You couldn't let go of it. Whatever it is, you want to drill down to exactly what gave you trouble during that exam administration, and then retool and recalibrate for the next time. And the good news is the LSAT's offered nearly every month. So you're only looking typically at another four to eight weeks for a potential retake. What is your advice to students who suffer from testing anxiety? A couple of things. Well, one is mindfulness meditation can be huge. I talked about having trouble letting go of a previous problem. Mindfulness meditation can help you do is train yourself to focus on one particular thing at a time. Meditation, oftentimes people focus on their breath. So you could train that and then it will carry over in terms of focus on the individual question at hand, not what came earlier, not what's going to come later. The other thing with test anxiety is make sure that you're fully simulating test day conditions. 
so that you know exactly what to expect. And when you encounter it on test day, you've seen it before. So for example, the format of the exam being online, being through ProctorU, have you tested out your equipment? Have you familiarized yourself with the look and feel of the online exam, which is quite different than the paper exam? The more you can prepare in advance, the more familiar it will be on test day, the less it might throw you off. Yeah, that's really great advice. What would your ideal LSAT preparation timeline look like for students? When should they start studying? How many times should they look to retake this exam? Is there a cap to how many times they can retake it? I recommend at least five to six months to reach your fullest potential. People try to knock it out in only two or three, but given its importance, like I said, you would want to give it more time than that to really achieve your top potential score, maximizing your odds of admission. If you're in college or you're working, I would aim for at least 10 to 15 hours a week. Keep it reasonable. Don't stay up at all hours trying to squeeze in more. If you're lucky enough to have full time to study, like you're over the summer, you have some free time, or you're taking a lighter course load one semester, maybe up it to 25, 30 hours, if you can maintain that with consistency and not to feel like you're burning out. I would also recommend that students not jump into full-length practice exams. Start with building the foundation first, gaining fluency in each of the question types, each of the sections, again, logic games, logical reasoning, and reading comprehension. Build up to the full-length timed exams. Do you find that the practice exams are a pretty good substitute for the real exams, meaning that if a student gets, you know, a 165 on their practice exams pretty consistently, that they can expect that they'll get pretty close to that on the real exam? Roughly, yes. Assuming that you've properly simulated test day conditions while you're taking that practice test. And so don't give yourself tons of breaks to get up to go to the refrigerator, go to the bathroom or get a snack or whatever. You can't do that on test day. So if you're properly simulating it fully, including any breaks as well as the time constraint, then you can expect it'll be a roughly equivalent or predictor of what test day will be like. But also give yourself a buffer to know that test day is obviously going to feel more stressful than a practice test where you know it doesn't count. So give yourself a little buffer. People do experience a test day drop sometimes due to anxiety, due to stress, due to tech issues. And so if you want the 170, let's say, then aim to have your practice test average be at least 172, 173 to give yourself that safety just in case. Okay. But the exam, the other thing I should mention is that the exams, the previously administered exams, the prep tests, they were actually administered before. So it's the same difficulty level, the same format, the same look and feel. And I would also suggest that students practice with recently administered exams. Don't use some old book of exams that was published 20 years ago when the exam has evolved in subtle ways over time. The most recent exams are always gonna be the most relevant. And then what are some of the most common struggles that you're seeing with students? You know, where, what are your top strategies for remedying those struggles? So I think one of the top struggles is honestly just having difficulty fitting in the time. And so I'll tell folks if they're working or they're in school, let's say they're working, carve out an hour, wake up early, carve out an hour before work. If you're commuting to work, even get to the office early and find a coffee shop, or find a conference room or a coffee shop nearby to hit the books for a bit before starting the day. Use your lunch break. If you have downtime at work, fit it in there. Stay at work or stay in the vicinity of work before commuting home. Because once you're home, then all the temptations of home life are there, whether it's Netflix or family or friends or whoever else. While you're in a focused work mode, you can get more done. Another big struggle students face is just getting discouraged by low practice test scores. And so one thing is to recognize that it's a journey. And so the first practice test scores you encounter will not reflect your actual ultimate potential. 
practice taking the first practice this is, is only the beginning. You've got to do several to really get into the rhythm in terms of the pacing as well as the endurance. And like I said earlier, build that foundation first. Don't just jump into the exams and expect to achieve success. You got to put in that time to give yourself the chance to get the accuracy down before jumping in. I think personally, I would benefit from taking some sort of class because I know my weakness is that I'm a big procrastinator if I don't have a lot of external structure and external, you know, motivation and pressure, accountability. Even if maybe a student can't afford an LSAT prep service, they could informally create one with friends where they're on Zoom holding each other accountable. Yeah, I highly recommend it. That's one reason that we added study groups into the LSAT Unplugged course, because it's it's hard to feel like you're going it alone. And classroom environment can be great to learn the material and connect with others in that context. But sometimes you just want to connect with other people and just talk about all the difficulties of the process and work through problems together outside of class where you can really just guide the conversation. And you also learn a lot by teaching others. And so we have that in the LSAT Unplugged course, but I recommend students can connect informally. There's, there's Facebook groups, there's Reddit, there's social media where you can find others going through the process too. What should students look for when they're looking for an LSAT tutor or an LSAT prep course? Look for someone you feel like you connect with. I mean, there are plenty of people who know the exam material well, but having a top score alone isn't enough. You have to be able to explain it well to someone who doesn't get it yet and someone who can relate to having gone through that journey themselves. And so more and more folks out there are putting out free material that can function as kind of a sample. I mean, I myself through the LSAT Unplugged YouTube channel, podcast, Facebook group, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all of that. I'm putting out as much free information as I possibly can so students can feel like they know what it would be like to work with me before deciding whether to invest in coaching or the course or anything else I offer. But I'm not the only one. Plenty of others are putting out free material as well. So I'd say take a look at that first before making a decision. Are there any major red flags? Do you have any strong opinions on some of the more prominent larger groups like Princeton Review? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I've looked at some of the materials from the from the the major corporations that are offering prep services. And just one concern I have is that they may not always tailor their recommendations or strategies to the particulars of the exam. I mentioned much earlier in our conversation how reading comprehension on the LSAT is actually quite different than reading comprehension on the SAT or the ACT in terms of what it's actually asking you to do. And I found when looking at Kaplan's books, for example, that they were literally taking the exact same sentences, the exact same words from one book and applying it to all their other books as well. I looked on Google Books and just did a search. I'm like, well, they're just reusing the stuff, but the exam is different. Maybe SAT and GRE are roughly the same. I don't know. But for the LSAT, it's a very different animal. The, the other concern I'd have with some of them is that they may not always adapt their materials to the latest format because they're not as invested in the LSAT space in particular. And so as the LSATs moved from paper to digital on a tablet to LSAT Flex, now the new four-section online LSAT, four sections, not three. I mean, I'm on top of this because this is what I do. So the second the announcement comes out, I'm like refreshing LSAT site every day for the updates. I'm then updating my materials. I haven't really seen the same from some of the bigger corporations that don't make this a focus. So what changes are coming in August of 2021? Sure. So the August LSAT is the first time they're going to add an experimental section into the online format of the exam. And people don't like the experimental section for obvious reasons. It's unscored. You don't know which one it's going to be. 
So you have to give it your full effort on the exam and it's not counting towards your score. So like to, it's kind of like you're doing free research work for LSAC in terms of giving them the information on how you perform. But you also have the stress associated because you don't know if it's the real thing. So it could be any of logic games, logical reasoning, reading comprehension. It could be any one of sections one, two, three, or four before the break or after the break, but it doesn't, it doesn't count. And you don't know which section it is while you're performing, while you're trying to solve it. Because if you did, obviously you wouldn't give it the same effort. So the reason they're doing this is because they need to be able to test out future LSAT questions in terms of their validity and in terms of testing out their difficulty level. And they can't really do this themselves because there's only so many LSAC employees and LSAC employees are quite different from pre-law students. They want to make sure the questions that future test takers take will be valid and reliable and perform the function they're meant to perform. So LSAT Flex, which was only three sections during COVID, did not contain this because they had to figure out just how to work with ProctorU and offer the exam online during COVID. But this is just a return to how it was before COVID. And the way to prepare is just to take your practice tests with that extra section added in. So you're saying the experimental section is also in the practice test sometimes? It's, it's, actually, it's actually never included in the practice tests because they can't release those questions publicly or else they wouldn't be able to reuse them on a future gotcha. exam. So it's possible that let's say someone took the LSAT in 2009, and they took it with the experimental, experimental section as it was administered back then on paper, that section may have then be, been re-administered in 2011, but this time as one of the actual scored sections. And so then maybe in 2012, it was released in a book. It wasn't counting while it was administered initially, and they're not releasing them as experimental sections. And so students will need to kind of have to mix and match exams in order to get the four section experience if they were using a flex exam. But funny historical footnote that now it becomes relevant is that because the LSAT used to be five sections, including experimental section four of which were scored, you now have, you now have tons of four section exams from that old format you can use. Those four section exams had two scored logical reasoning sections. So if you want to simulate a four section LSAT with logical reasoning as your experimental section, you can just use those. And remind me, what was the fifth section that they got rid of? And are they ever going to bring that back? Well, the fifth was just the unscored experimental section. Okay. So when it was gotcha. on paper, it was one section of logic games, one section of reading comprehension, and two sections of logical reasoning, both of which were scored. Now it's only one of each that's scored. But if you want to practice with extra logical reasoning, you can just use that extra section that was there before. And what are the plans from LSAC as far as, are they ever going to go back into in person? Is there going to be the option of taking the LSAT in person and online? They haven't made an ultimate decision on this. We can expect it will be administered online for the foreseeable future. They've left open the possibility to bring back administering it in person. They seem to indicate that they want to do that. But offering it online just offers so many logistical benefits that I expect they will always allow it to remain online, but maybe in special cases, they will allow folks to, to take it in person as well. And there's no major concerns about cheating or academic dishonesty, or does ProctorU kind of have that pretty well covered? ProctorU seems to have it pretty well covered. They've been at this for quite a while. And so they've been big on the test security. They record everything. They have a proctor there live watching test takers while they're doing it as well. And so if there were any irregularities, they could look into that pretty easily. And 
as far as cheating on the LSAT, it actually isn't that easy to cheat because there's no reference material you could quickly consult. There's no, it's not a knowledge-based exam. It's a test of reasoning. So maybe somebody could benefit a little bit by looking up a contrapositive format, but that's something you should already know, but going into it, it's not like you're memorizing, like what's the function of a mitochondria in a cell or something. <laughs> so the time constraint of the LSAT is so strict that even if you could consult something, I don't know that it would give you much of a boost. Is that a major struggle for people who take the LSAT, the time constraint? Is that something you have to really get used to with the practice tests? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's almost, in my view, it's unreasonable to ask people to do all the questions in the time allotted, given how difficult they are. So it's actually designed, in my view, so that such that most people cannot complete it, which is why pacing is such an important part of exam prep. Accuracy and just doing questions is only getting them right is only the first step. You have to get them right under that time constraint, which is why you have to work strategically in terms of doing the questions in a particular order, pacing yourself, knocking out the easy questions early so that you have a time bank to, to deal with the more t- difficult questions that come later. How does scoring work? I know for some exams for undergraduate admissions, I think for the, at least in the past, the SAT, you would, if you answered something wrong, you would lose a point. But if you didn't answer it at all, it would be like neutral. So sometimes it was advantageous to, if you weren't sure, just not to answer it at all. Are there any similar like testing answering strategies for the LSAT? For the LSAT, they do not penalize you for wrong answers. And so you should never leave anything blank. You should always put something down for every single question. As far as a test-taking strategy, what I often recommend for students when it comes to question-solving order is, let's say for reading comprehension, the questions associated with one particular passage can be displayed in any order. So they might ask you a detail-oriented question first and a main idea question later. I would suggest to students, do all the general questions like main idea or primary purpose first. Knock those out because those should be the easiest then get into some of the more detail-oriented questions after the fact. Then for logic games, the first question's usually kind of a gimme. I call it an orientation question. I'd knock that out first and then do all the local if questions next, finally wrapping up with the general questions because the work from the local questions can help you solve the general ones. I know, I know I'm getting into details here, but my point is basically that you don't have to do the questions in the order given and the work done on earlier questions can help you with the work that you're doing on later questions. I imagine the online format as well makes it a lot easier. I remember in sixth grade taking an exam and bubbling the answers and jumping around like that and ending up my bubbles were like shifted one down. And so that's always been like a fear of mine. Oh yeah, that would happen my... to people. That, that happened to people a lot on the paper. Yeah. That's a huge benefit of the online where there's not, you, you can't screw it up like that because you're seeing immediately next to each bubble which one it is. And so if you see a blank one, it'll be it'll hopefully be more obvious. You can also see immediately at a glance which questions you flagged. So there's a flagging function. Let's say you skip number 12. Just put a little flag, click the flag icon. It'll show up on your navigation bar. And then you'll know at a glance, hey, I've got to go back to question number 12. Are students able to do their practice exams online to simulate this format? They can, yeah. The Law School Admission Council actually has created a system that simulates exactly what the Proctor U system will look like. So you can do your practice questions on their system. All those previously administered exams, I mentioned the prep tests, you can do them in, on that format, seeing all the features like highlighting, underlining, flagging questions, bubbling in, 
eliminating so that when you take the on actual test day, it'll be the same. That's great. Cause we talked about testing anxiety earlier and you kind of touched on this, but you know, one of the top ways to eliminate any sort of testing or interview anxiety is to just try to control as many factors as possible because, you know, you can't control what questions you're actually going to read, but you can control that you understand the online format, that you understand what the sections are going to be, you know, how long it's going to be. And I think that just goes so far to eliminating a lot of your testing anxiety. Exactly. Seeing as many elements of the process as you can beforehand will make the actual thing feel that much more familiar. So we, we did talk about this earlier as well, but you know, law school admissions saw a huge surge during COVID and I'll be interested to see if that continues within the next year, maybe next two or three years. But are students going to need higher LSAT scores to keep competing in the future? I think for undergraduate admissions, we see that that's kind of this like, it just keeps going up and up and up and it feels like almost like the bubble has to burst at some point. So are we seeing that for law school admissions? Well, the funny thing with COVID is that like, as we said earlier, the LSAT flex was leading folks to get higher scores. So those who took the flex may have been at a relative advantage to those who had taken the previous version in person. So those folks may have gotten a boost, but because we had such a high surge in applications during COVID, it was actually the most competitive cycle ever that I can remember at least. And so a lot of folks will defer in part because law schools, as you, as you alluded to, they kind of they kind of didn't get their numbers right. And so they couldn't, they couldn't make their class sizes big enough to accommodate everybody. So a lot of folks are actually going to push off applying until the coming cycle, which is something I've seen among my own audience as well, that folks are going to say, Hey, I want to apply in 2021 to start in 2022. So I think next cycle may be just as competitive and things generally seem to be getting better with the pandemic situation. But as the economy hasn't really still fully recovered from what I can tell. I think folks will look to apply that much more again, the coming cycle. So I, I anticipate things still f- remaining fairly competitive. And so you're going to need a higher LSAT score to account for that. I think if I were a student, I would maybe not apply in the next cycle just because there will be so many spots filled by people who are needing to defer right now. So I can imagine maybe taking an additional gap year could be super helpful for some students. Yeah, I could see that as well. I mean, there's, if you're willing to play the long game on this, if you could wait another year to get into that much better a law school, why not? The return you get over the course of your career could be huge. We have been seeing a trend, if I'm correct, over maybe like the last decade or even longer that there are, you know, maybe a lot more lawyers than there are jobs. Like the amount of people going to law school just kind of keeps going up and up and up. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And that's one reason I think that students really need to focus a lot on networking and building their building their personal brand. You know, you can't just go to law school and expect to get a six-figure job walking out. From the top 14, you have a better better chance of success there because you have the name brand recognition from the school, but you can't count on them to do everything for you. And so I think folks need to just take more ownership of their careers and do more on their end in terms of networking via LinkedIn, strengthening their resume through things like internships. I mean, the candidacy building work that you guys do, right? Like the more of that they can do to play the long game with networking, the more they can benefit for their careers. I just recorded an interview last week with one of our employees here at Ingenious about test optional and test blind policies and how you know we're temporarily seeing that in undergraduate admissions. Is the LSAT here to stay? Are we ever going to see law school admissions without the LSAT or you know maybe some more granola law schools getting rid of it? 
for now, it seems that the LSAT's here to stay, at least for the at least for the short term. The American Bar Association requires that law schools use a valid and reliable admission test. And the GRE has started to make some inroads, but a very, very small percentage of law schools are admitting their students through that route, less than 5%. The vast majority are still LSAT. And so rather than going test optional, we may just see the GRE be accepted by more law schools. But still, I think taking the LSAT is also a way to demonstrate that you're focused on law in particular, whereas the GRE, you can kind of take that and go to almost any grad school. So if you think if you want to demonstrate you're serious about law school, the LSAT would be the way to go. But who knows, on a long enough timeline, I could see potentially things getting a bit more open. In what situations would a student take the GRE? Obviously, they'd have to be applying to law schools that accepted it. But from a testing point of view, are there certain attributes or capabilities that the GRE is more friendly towards? GRE has math on it. So someone who likes math and does well in math may do better on that. The voc- I know it tests vocabulary as well. So maybe someone has a really strong vocabulary and likes to go the flashcards root of memorizing vocabulary words, they may do well on that. But I don't know too, know too much about the GRE to speak about it in particular, though I know the, the math on the GRE can be intimidating. The LSAT can obviously be intimidating as well. But folks should consider that they've, if, they, if they've already taken the LSAT, then that score will be on their record and law schools will have to consider it. So if they're doubtful about that, maybe they could just try the GRE and see if they totally rock it and get a top score and then see if they can apply to one of those schools that accepts the GRE. But if you want to cast a wide net, you're going to want the LSAT. Do you have any other, you know, final words of advice for people who are going to take the LSAT soon, for people who are about to embark on their LSAT prep journey? I would say don't let your LSAT score define you. I think so many folks get wrapped up with their LSAT scores as a measure of their self-worth. And that's problematic for a number of reasons. One is that this is just a means to an end. Like you want to go to law school, you want to become a lawyer. The LSAT is a multiple choice test that in some ways is, is arbitrary. It doesn't reflect your career potential in terms of what you can do even after law school. It's only a means to an end and you can always retake. So don't be discouraged by your diagnostic test. Don't be discouraged if the actual test data doesn't go well for whatever reason. You may just need to give it more time, but you can conquer it in the end. To your knowledge, is there any data about success on the LSAT, top LSAT scores, and then academic performance in law school and career outcomes, financial outcomes post-graduation? The reason the LSAT is considered a valid and reliable admission test is because it has a decent correlation with first-year law school grades. And nobody wants folks reflecting out of their first year of law school. That being said, though, of course, the LSAT is a standardized multiple choice exam. Law school tests something very different. And then legal career success is extremely difficult to measure since people take different career paths. So that's it. Just first year of law school is the only reason it's considered valid and reliable. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into the LSAT. For more information, check out our blog link in this episode description. We'll also link the LSAT Unplugged information. If you have any questions or you'd like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow. Give LSAT Unplugged a follow as well. And send us a message on social media with a hashtag, Inside Admissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.